What you're about to hear are the key parts of a one-off session with a real person. Names have been changed for confidentiality. Please note this episode contains some distressing content, including discussion around suicide and death, which may not be suitable for all listeners. I've not been to the HR or the Honourable Artillery Company since then, and I've just walked past it this morning and stood outside. But I just found myself just crying outside it. This is How Did We Get Here with me, Claudia Winkleman, and my excellent friend, clinical psychologist, Professor Tanya Byron. We look at some of the issues that people are facing in their daily lives. In each show, Tanya talks to our guest in a one-to-one session, and I listen in, asking questions in the breaks. Please note this episode was recorded before lockdown in a studio. This time, we meet Gary, who served in the military and for the British Transport Police. He is troubled by some of the horrifying and tragic things he dealt with as part of his job. Gary, who is married with three children, felt his life spiral out of control as a result of what he now realises is PTSD. He says he wasn't given the tools to deal with what he saw. Let's go meet Gary. Why are you here? Well, basically, just to try and hopefully raise some awareness around men's mental health and, get, you know, really encourage guys to talk about their mental health, to be open about it. You came to this conclusion because something happened yep. to you. Tell me tell me your story. Well, basically, I joined the British Transport Police back in 2003. I was quite old when I joined. I was sort of 34, 35. Expected, you know, to, to deal with police type stuff yeah. and trauma, but nothing really prepared me for continuous trauma that I did with fatalities on the railway. And, of course, we had the London bombings in 2005. Yeah. I was actually off duty at that time. Um, my wife had just had our third son. I was part of our anti-terrorism team at the time. So I got back in the following day. And then uh, my governor came down and just said, you're off to the mortuary. And I sort of asked, why? And he said, we well, were next squad here, yeah? So I said, yeah. He said, well, congratulations, we need a skipper down there, sergeant. And I was sort of like, well, you've got one part, right? Yeah, I'm an ex-squaddy, yeah. not a skipper. And he said, congratulations on your promotion. And off I went down as an acting sergeant, just down the road to the HAC, where the temporary mortuary was situated. Gary, can I ask you, you mentioned that HAC. Yeah. What is it? So that's the Honourable Artillery Company, a very famous old regiment. And, and that was utilised during the bombings. Um, they've got a huge um, sports field in amongst the grounds, which was then broken down into the four sites for the four bombing areas and I was there for just under eight weeks helping to identify the victims and what was left of the bombers and I've never seen anything like that in my life. It's not until later in lifetime that things start to come back. Going back to your first point about men, you were probably being... Big and brave. Of course. Your wife had just had a newborn. Yep. You had two other boys. How old were they? Right, so my oldest lad, Danny, would have been nearly seven. Uh, Joe would have been around five. A lot to have, you know, that's... (laughs) Absolutely. A lot. And you just went off to work every day and saw... Yeah, we were dealing with, obviously, the victims, and without going into too much detail, you know, they were in a bad shape given that they've been down in the tunnels for some days. It it was a very hot summer. The blast injuries were just atrocious. You know, we were working anything between 12 to 14 hours a day. One of my duties there as well 
was to take the deceased through to family viewing area. Once we had managed to identify them, I never used to take any notice of the sort of little pictures that the mortuary team had to help us assist, or assist us identifying those people because it just got a bit personal. Yeah. And then one day I had to take this young kid through. He was, um, my understanding, was one of the youngest victims. And I never used to look at the cards or whatever. I just put them in the body bags with the flowers, zip them back up and, and take them back to where I, I got them from, you know, and crack on with my paperwork and whatever. But when I was, took this young boy through, I don't know how some of the staff came about this information, but they said that this young fella's dad was coming to, to view. And um, apparently he just lost his wife and that was his only child. Um, so I took him through. And when I went back in to, to bring him out, I caught the card. Oh, God me, it, it just, it done me. Um, I'm surprised. Well, it was so, well, overwhelming and, and the feeling of um, guilt I had instantly because I was going home to my new baby, my two other babies. And, uh, sorry. No. Were people around you going, are you all right? No. Is anybody checking <laughs> on the mental health of the people who are having to deal with that? It sort of goes back to what we, we opened yeah. up with. We're just I had two minutes to myself, went back, took this kid kid back. But you just puff your chest out and you crack on. Yeah. Because that's what blokes do. Yeah, and before I knew it, the time had come that we sort of broke down the mortuary and we went back to our normal policing duties. But how do you go back to normal after that? That's a good question because it's from that point on I would really suggest that what was normal, it's a bit like now with this COVID, yeah. you know. Um, but after also, after you seeing that and not discussing it, it must have reared its head. It took a while um, because... You put on this front all the time, and that's how my career went. But I didn't speak to anyone because I was I was ashamed of myself because I thought I was tougher than that and better than that. But then there's also the other side of it where you think, well, everyone looks at you as a leader. You're always yeah. there, you know, in whatever situation, you're always at the front, always in the thicker stuff. What are they going to think of you? Yeah. What's your management going to think of you? And even at home, did you unravel no. to your wife? No. And it was tough because my wife being a police officer, my wife was uh, in a child protection team, so she was, you know, dealing with her own yeah. traumas. When did it catch up with you <sighs> and how did it manifest itself? I would suggest probably three or four years after the bombings, I was drinking quite heavily. And I was drinking so I could nullify yeah. the events of that working day. So I could then try and get some sleep because the nightmares and and flashbacks were just beyond compare. It, it was as if I was actually reliving the moment. You know, all the senses were there, the sights, the sounds, the smells. Goodness. It was putting a strain on the, the relationship with a wife. I wasn't aware of it, but I was also taking it out on my two oldest boys. It got to the point where my oldest boy... He dreaded me coming home because he didn't know what reception he would get, yeah. you know, and he was worried that I'd be shouting, not only him, but his brother as well. I knew there was something wrong, but I couldn't get to the grips of it, you know, the crux of it. And then I, in 2012, 
I think we were quite close to getting divorced because of my behaviour. Yeah. And I got involved in something off duty, which cops should never ever do unless it's, you know, life or limb. Yeah. But this was quite serious and it eventually um, resulted in me fighting with a guy on a train station after he tried to push two young cops onto a live <gasps> track. He was smashed out of his head on gear and, and booze. I had to punch him. He tried to bite me. I still maintain it was lawful and proportionate. However, I ended up in Crown Court and it cost me my job. I was found guilty of an, uh, an ABH offence. Um, you know, And even the judge, he was brilliant. He, uh, he actually guided the jury twice to a not guilty verdict because the evidence was all in my yeah. favour. But you judged by your peers and that was that. That was it for me. That was rock bottom. You needed to get to the bottom. I went back with this again. This was in 2013 at Christmas time, December. And the judge was great. And he sent me to see the top forensic shrink in the country because he knew I was struggling. Yeah. And he basically said, yeah, look, you know, Gary's a normal guy. His actions on a day are purely through uh, the events that he was involved with during the London bombings in 2005 and all subsequent uh, fatalities thereafter. I'll never forget it. It's sort of almost verbatim. Wow. Once we'd got that, the penny dropped with the wife and I. Yeah. You know, my diagnosis are I've got chronic complex PTSD. You started off this chat saying you want men to seek help. Yeah, absolutely. And to get rid of the stigma. But I am now going to ask you that question, but I want to think, I want you to think about you. When you leave here, what do you want for you? To be able to walk away from here this morning and, and I made a point of doing it walking here. I walked past the HAC. I've not been there since 2005. Wow. And I must admit, I just stood outside the gates for a couple of minutes and had a moment. Yeah. Um, but you can't forget that stuff. But I don't know, just, just to take a little bit of weight off my shoulders, if, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. You are somebody who naturally wants to be in the middle of things helping others. That is, that's your personality, isn't it? Probably, yeah. <laughs> you're, a, you're a crisis manager, you're a problem solver. Can't solve my own problems sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like you have. The journey it's taken you on is that you now run a, a really excellent charity, PTSD 999, where you support people similar to you who are struggling with PTSD because of what they've experienced in their jobs. Yeah. I didn't realise the, the levels that there are within the emergency services, not just the police, but all of the emergency services of the men and women that are struggling in absolute silence. You know, and it's not always associated with the men and women out on the front line. A classic example of that is the, the men and women who were taking the calls for the Grenfell fire. They're talking to people who are above a certain level in that block of flats and just basically saying, oh. we can't get to you. But you have to care for the carers. Absolutely. Otherwise, you know, they're at, certainly not. At best, you're, you, you become burnt out. Yep. At worst, you develop complex PTSD and end up with it only being diagnosed when you're on an ABH charge, which is your experience. And yep. then, of course, you're left with guilt and shame yep. and you lost your job. And, I mean... It, it, it it just beggars belief, actually. I mean, it's it, it, the the lack of duty of care that is shown to personnel is is astonishing. And thankfully, I wasn't sentenced to a term in prison because that would have just been awful. 
you know, a former cop in prison with a lot of people that he's probably put in there anyway. No, Life would have been yes, a bit unbearable. Absolutely. But do you know what? I, I went home that evening and didn't really talk to the wife because I'd expressed to her, I'd, I'd sit down with the kids the night before and say, there's a good chance I'm not coming home tomorrow and explain that process to them. And I, uh, the wife went to work the following day. The kids were at school. And I went to go and take my own life. I was in just such a bad place because of what you just said, all the guilt, the shame that I brought on the family. I was out of work. I'm doing the manly thing again. You know, I'm there to look after my family. Yeah. And then just everything imploded on me. And I just went and sat um, at a place where I dealt with, well, too many fatalities and just waited for that fast one to come in. And, and when it was approaching... All I had to do was stand up and just either fall forward or step forward and the train would have taken care of business. What stopped you? The train was hurling towards me and I just had, I don't know, this moment of absolute clarity and then just sort of fell back on my ass, had a good cry and realised I was being a bit of a selfish twat and I've got to do something. I went home um He'd come to a point where I just broke down indoors and I'd explain what I'd try to do. I'm lucky, I guess, that because we'd had the diagnosis a little bit earlier and everything had sort of fallen into place and we sort of we've tried to move on uh, as best we can since then. It's been very difficult. I still have my moments. This time of the year, I'm really struggling because it's the anniversary of the bombings. Yeah. Yeah, and I've not been to the H or the Honourable Artillery Company since then. And I just walked past it this morning and stood outside. But I just found myself just crying outside it. Were I those, felt better for it afterwards. I was going to say, yeah, what, what, what were those tears? Because obviously you could have stood out there and had masses of flashbacks and panic. Yeah. I can see the tears in your eyes now. It, it was almost like I was just watching a, a rerun on a video of it, of, of us all queuing up and going in, and then people going off to do the separate things. Mm. It was really unpleasant. Um, you know, the environment we were going into, you know, I must admit, I did feel a bit better for it. Stand, just, you mean this morning standing, yeah. having a cry? Yeah, because I've, I've just not done it, you know. It was a bit of a release, I think, a bit of a relief more than anything that I've got that bit off my chest. It feels more like grief than anxiety. It feels like a movement on from more of a PTSD response. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, as I was coming in this morning, um, in my head, I'd already picked various routes to get here. You mean routes Just either to, to, avoid to avoid anxiety? Yeah. It, you know, one of the ways we try and deal with anxiety is to avoid. Yeah. Which is fine if it's an actual threat because you've got to avoid it in order to survive. But obviously with psychological levels of acute or chronic anxiety if you avoid something that makes you anxious at a psychological and emotional level it's actually counterproductive because <laughs> by avoiding it you reinforce the belief that it's trauma and danger absolutely and you know coming in on the train i hate going on public transport now of course you do and so i was i was very anxious sitting on a train you know and having been part of our then newly formed anti-terrorism team, some of the stuff that we'd seen and the training that we had, you know, that, that comes flooding back. And then I thought, right, I've got options. I can turn right and walk the long way around 
or I can just walk straight through and end up by the HAC. And I just thought, sod it. I've done the train journey now. Let's try and move on a bit more and get that out of the way. So you did what's called ex- exposure, systematic desensitisation exposure work, which is the idea that we as mental health practitioners, when we're working with people with PTSD or, in your case, chronic and complex PTSD because you've had multiple experiences mm. over a long period of time, but that would be to support you to revisit with your therapist the narrative of what happened you would see it as you're discussing it. And as therapists, we will keep you feeling safe. We will keep your ang- help you keep your anxiety levels down. So you, you re-expose yourself to the images and the memories, but you alter your emotional state. And mm. it's sort of what you did this morning when you stood outside the HAC. You kept yourself calm. You just reflected and you cried. And I would say that's an incredibly healthy thing that you did. Huge admiration. I do have my moments still, and you know, thankfully, over the years, you know, Sharon and the boys, they recognise straight away when I'm sort of starting to slip back a little bit. How I'm would they know out. you were slipping back? What would you? Be- what would happen? I become very sort of quiet. I sort of take myself away from the family, and I will just keep myself to myself. They'll just give me a nudge, oi, Mister PTSD, and they'll Aren't sort they of take the piss out of us a wee bit because they've got used. I, 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 but they're saying, "Come to, back, Dad. Yeah. Come back, Dad." And it does. Please can you explain to me the difference between PTSD, which I think most of us now have heard about it, we know that people come back from war and have to deal with it, and what he has, which is chronic complex PTSD. What's the difference? So PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. So you have a traumatic experience, an accident, you know, loss of a loved one in, 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 in a particularly sort of difficult, challenging, unpleasant, horrific, unexpected way. You witness something horrific, horrendous. It's that kind of out of the blue experience um, or not even out of the blue because obviously soldiers in war will experience things that they are trained to experience, prepared to experience, but still the experience itself will cause post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's when a memory is encoded in a way that it isn't just autobiographical, i.e. I can remember it if I'm asked, I can talk about it, I may feel sad or upset, but it doesn't It doesn't debilitate me. So it's where the triggering event, it could be a piece of music, it could be something you read, it, it could be a smell, transports you right back to the moment where the actual trauma occurred and you experience the same level of fear and terror and horror and shock, even if it's years and years later. Complex PTSD is when there are people for whom this has happened a number of times. So for Gary, the experiences in the police force and around the 7-7 bombings and so on and so forth... He has had a number of extremely traumatic events that have happened over time. Because he's had no support to process them, all of them just layer upon layer get encoded in a part of the brain called the amygdala. We've talked about it before, Claude, in in other programmes we've done. And it is encoded so that if it's reimagined, if it's remembered, it's relived. And chronic 
is when it just continues, 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 continues. It's a chronic ongoing experience that that person will have. So the risk of being triggered is always there. Okay, back to the chat. And you were drinking, you said? Oh, massively. That was your coping strategy? As a young infantry soldier in the Royal Green Jackets, that's all we, any young squaddy does. You just drink, especially when you're away. But when I was really, really struggling, I turned into a proper boozer. I mean, my wife did a, a statement that we use sometimes in the presentations that we do. And there's part of it where she talks about going to the fridge. Now, no disrespect to my wife, she burns boiling water. So clearly, I do all the cooking indoors. I'm mainly in the fridge. And she went to the fridge to get some stuff out to make a sandwich or something, and it was full of beer, wine, Jack Daniels. And I couldn't see a problem with it. Numb, narcotise, black it out, blot it out, push it away. I'll go to bed, smash that out of my head. You know, I was just too ignorant, arrogant, I suppose. I don't know. I'd say vulnerable. I'd say vulnerable. I am curious whether you have quite forgiven yourself because I do think you do carry a lot of guilt and shame. You're absolutely right, I do. Have Um, you forgiven yourself? Not really. And I don't know why. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Listening to your story, and there will be lots of people listening to your story, I can't imagine anybody will want to do anything else than just hug you (laughs) and say thank you for your bravery, thank you for putting your mental health at risk in order to do a job that most people literally just wouldn't even, wouldn't want to, I mean, no, I mean, who wants to do what you did? I mean, it was horrific. Why are you crying? Sorry, I was closing no, my eyes when I was talking, so I've only just opened them again. I, I don't really do well with... Compliments. Yeah. You've lost a lot of self-respect, which is extraordinary for a man that I sit here and I have nothing but enormous respect for. When I come out of the army, um, I went into the territorial army and I was looking after people and instructing people there you know, working, doing stuff in the, in the TV sort of industry, when we're showing people how to use firearms and stuff like that, straight away you've got, again, a duty of care towards those people, mm. and it, you know. And the police was, an, uh, I guess, an exceptional thing where not only were you upholding the law and the Queen's peace, but you were looking after everyone. But you're very good at that. But what you're not so great at is looking after yourself... There was no one there in any specific formal way when you were picking bits of body parts mm. off rail tracks. Yeah. It's difficult for you to know how to look after yourself. It's easy for you to know how to look after others. One uh, example, we, myself and my partner from work, we had a, a dreadful uh, fatality. We left, left work in between where both of us live is our little British Legion club. And there was about 40 minutes left on the clock before the bar closed. And I think within half an hour, we'd done about seven pints. He turned around to me and went, that was shit, wasn't it? And my response was, yeah, do you want another pint? And that was me and him dealing with that horrible scenario. There you are in the British Legion club or whatever, on your sixth or seventh pint going, well, that was shit, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, do you want another pint? Is that how blokes are supposed to do it? I don't know. Whoever's written that script has clearly got it wrong because... It's a bit crap, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's the worst case. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. But we never, ever spoke. And I remember getting a bit of a rollicking off of him after one event. We were dealing with a, a big public order situation um, with football hooligans. And I went on the train, a big fight, um, and I dragged this guy off the train. And we got him to the back of the vehicle, and my old colleague went to me, you really need to sort yourself out, mate. Was he saying you, you were putting yourself at risk? Yeah, and possibly others. Dealing with people like that wasn't an issue, but i just become so focused. He saw something happen. He saw a switch flick yeah. in your head. My, my tolerance had gone. Right, so anxiety is the fight, flight yeah. or freeze response, isn't it? Yeah. So you do one of two things you have avoided in the past. Yeah. And alcohol is a very good way of avoiding emotional pain, yeah. anxiety, trauma, etc. So avoidance is a strategy you've used. So that's flight. But fight is another way. I suppose, the, and I suppose to some degree, the ABH charge, to yeah, some degree. That, that was the trigger um, for, for the PTSD. You're talking about the ABH moment yeah, now. Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. All I could think about then was I pulled these two young coppers away from the edge of the platform. We'd got this guy on the floor because he tried to throw them on the track. He tried to bite me. I punched him. But I was straight back to the mortuary and this... In your head, that's yeah, what you were that, saying. Because I could hear my son shouting from the far end of the platform. He was watching his dad fighting. Um, and all I could think of was there's potential I'll go on this live track. That's me. I'm up in smoke. And my boy and my family. And you were back with that father looking at his yeah. his dead and, son. And I was so angry with this individual for because the other chap he was with had leapt across the, in front of the train as it was coming in because my, say my son Joe thought he'd seen someone be crushed by a train. So he's dealing with that. And all I could think of was this dad. And the, and the card him? that he left with for, you know, um, for his son. You're seeing it now. Tell me what you're seeing. In the mortuary, flowers and, and cards. But it's just, you know, seeing them words on that card. Are you able to say what you read? You can't. That's fine. That's fine. That mortuary thing is a picture. It's like looking at a picture on the wall there. It's there. I can't I can't change it. I can't get rid of it as much as I want to. And some of the sort of therapy that we had, thankfully, it, it determined that that really was what I was struggling with. Um, my job wouldn't pay for any more therapy. I certainly wasn't in a position to um, be able to pay for it, so it stopped. I can talk about anything else, but just that, I just, I just can't and won't. It's just um... absolutely. But you know, without the detail, which isn't actually necessary, it, it, what you read was a father saying goodbye to his son. Yeah, and of course, you're a father of three boys. I mean, it just, I mean, it, there's layer upon layer upon layer of of pain. A couple of simple words on a on a card. For a, from a father 
to his only child, I just can't even think about having to write it. In that moment, what it did was it personalised the job. You're obviously doing the best you can. You're being as compassionate as you can to those you're dealing with, but you have to keep some kind of boundary in. Then you read something, you read it not, not just as a professional, but you read it as a father, and then it blows that professional boundary away. And that's when I think it got past, it got past the professional boundary and it's still lodged there like a bullet. Yeah. So the question is, how does that bullet come out? How do we take that bullet out? I feel that I've got a lot better over the years. Um, you know, the flashbacks and, and whatever else, thankfully they're nowhere near as regular as they used to be. This time of the year, it's like Christmas. We all know it's coming. It's 7-7 will always be with me. There is other stuff that we've dealt with that surpasses the horrors that we saw there, but for some reason, that sticks with me. You know, if we think about our jobs... We have a sort of a sort of shield, don't we? Yeah. So that you know the bullets come and you hear all this stuff, but it 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 deflects because you're thinking about it professionally. In that moment, one of those bullets got past that shield and it hit you square in your in your yeah. heart, and you encoded that memory as a father, and that memory as a father then of course re emerged when as a father with your son Joe there on the platform you thought this could happen to my family yeah. so that's where PTSD is it, it's it's the way a memory is built around trauma but also the meaning of that memory and that moment meant something to you personally not only professionally I think my headline is you want to look after other people mm. and I think you you do that and you do it extremely well. I don't think you see that. No. <laughs> so I think that's the first part of of my thinking today is there is a bit of work to help you reposition your sense of yourself in all of this. Yeah. It's time to let go of the guilt and shame. It's time to be a survivor Guilt and shame is what men feel when they get into a situation like ABH. Even though it's triggered by PTSD, guilt and shame is what people feel when they drink too much, when they shout at their wife and their kids, their husband and their kids, their partners and their kids. It's guilt and shame. And I and that I think you still carry. Yeah. And we have to think about a way for you to take that rucksack off now. I think you've been carrying it for too long. So that's point number one. Yeah. Point number two, I think, is somehow you've managed to cobble together enough support for you to have, to, I think, done a huge amount of work in your journey. But if I think of you as someone who has taken a lot of bullets, you are the man who will stand, well, you were a close protection officer, you stand between the target <laughs> and, the, and the gunman. You've taken a lot of bullets and I think you have taken out quite a few of those bullets, but I still think there are two or three still lodged. Mm. I think those memories you still need some work around. So you and I need to think about how, how that's done. Not here now. No. We will talk yeah. about that and think about that for you. But there is something we could do now. We could take a break so you could think about it and, yeah. and, and very much if you want to. If we are professionals who, and you are a professional now through your charity, we cannot really be telling others, now it's your time, you need to look after yourself, if we're not prepared to do that ourselves. 
How can we help you leave here today with a sense of pride and self-respect? Let's have a practice together and see how you do. Okay. I'd like to talk to you about men's mental health. Why don't men ask for help? Because women do. You're my girlfriend, your girlfriend, my girlfriend, even if it's like the kids are driving me mad or I just feel really sad and I feel like I'm sort of unravelling and can we just meet for a cup of tea? We do that all the time. Mm-hmm. And men don't. So, I mean, it, it, it's. I think it's around the socialisation of gender, I think it's around sort of primitive stereotypes around gender roles. Yeah. Um, Men having to be brave, yeah. which is nonsense. They but don't. Bravery, I mean, I don't think anybody could say that Gary isn't anything other than unbelievably, unbelievably brave. I mean, yeah. seriously. But, you know, it's this idea that if you're brave, um, somehow you won't feel it. But I think probably what made Gary particularly good at his job is that he showed compassion and respect to the families of those who had been killed. We know that if you look at the annual suicide statistics, you know, it's up near 80%, the number of men who take their own lives every year in terms of everybody who takes their own lives, 80% almost are men. We know that men struggle to ask for help, probably because it sits around this idea that big boys don't cry. I think it's changing. I work in a lot of adolescent and young adult mental health and I see more and more young men coming asking for help and support. So it's about conversation and it's about seeing vulnerability as strength. But I think for men, vulnerability is seen as weakness. I want Gary to tell his story differently or for him to have some pride. He feels like a moral compass giant of a man. Don't worry, I'll deal with it. He takes the bullets. Yeah. Yeah. How does he reframe that? So the concept of reframing is about how perception can make a huge difference to our experience of past events, current circumstances. You know, in a kind of cliched way, it's it's, are you a sort of, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? That's a, that's a, that's a very basic version of of reframing. And, you know, when you look at concepts like resilience, resilience is often around how people cope with really difficult circumstances in terms of how they respond to the anxiety. Does the anxiety cause them to collapse into themselves and feel helpless and sort of victimised or does it enable them to push themselves into a space where they are going to find their way through? It's interesting with Gary, he's an incredibly resilient man. I mean, extraordinarily resilient. The issue for him, I think, is he, I think, is still struggling to a degree, not like he did, but to a degree, because the memories of what he has experienced are overlaid with guilt and shame. We understand why he got into the fight with the guy and ended up with the ABH charge. The judge... Mm bless him, understood that, you know, it was understood. Understanding doesn't mean we condone behaviour, but it means that we find a way to look at it so that we can get the best outcomes for ourselves and others around that. All Gary sees is his fault. He wasn't a good enough husband. 
he wasn't a good enough father when he was going through the, the really bad PTSD and the drinking. He needs to be able to process that and move past it because that is making everything still feel very painful for him on top of the pain that exists anyway because of the trauma that he, he witnessed and experienced. All right, Tom, let's get him in. How are you doing? Yeah, um, do you know what? It's actually nice to be able to feel the back of the sofa <laughs> from the first thing this morning. You were sitting bolt upright. Yeah. You're um, right. Yeah. Now, just it, I do feel as as if you know a weight has been sort of lifted off my shoulders. Now, it's just been an amazing experience. But you deserve it because you're a hero. I can hear your buttocks clenching yeah. with embarrassment. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you just shifted in the seat. <laughs> I use the word hero because I do believe you are a hero. But I use the word hero because I wanted to see your reaction. And you reacted in that way because you can tell everybody else they're a hero. But you just cannot allow yourself to be proud of yourself. No, you're right. What are you the most proud of when you look back over those difficult times in terms of yourself? Blimey. You've never even ever thought about that before? No. How do you recognise what what you've achieved, what you've done? Off the top of my head, when I was going, going through that process of the court hearing and stuff like that, the, the public area was full of police officers and some senior police officers from my force. And that was... To support you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's lovely. Um, and that was something I didn't really anticipate. Mm. Um, and when I lost my job and I had to resign, I was given a choice to uh, resign or go before a panel. And there was a gentleman that came up from our professional standards and he had to ask for my warrant card in... Um, in the court, in the little ante room, and he cried. You know, you just think to yourself, well, have I had that that much of an impact on the people that I work with? And it's bringing tears to your eyes now. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and comments that were, were made to me afterwards when I left, you sort of expect it, you know, people, oh, I'm really sorry, Gaz, I'm really the... So many kind words. I guess on reflection, if that was how people remember me, then those comments from people who were extremely sincere, I'm proud of that, I guess. Um, so you're proud of what others think of you, which is great. I'm curious about... <laughs> oh, no, I'll just... Honestly, Tony, at this point... Oh, I, I, we're getting there. We're just... We're drilling down. People aren't just saying it because they can, it's because they mean it. Exactly. So embrace it, enjoy it. You know, I love hearing people commenting now on my kids as when we were kids, my dad's friends would pat your your boys and your girl, wonderful kids, so polite, so this, and, you know, friends say it about my lads and it's just like, that's really nice. And you what, if your lads were here now, what would they say about you? And that's made you really tear up. 
you must know that they have a sense of pride for you and a sense of respect for you. What have they said to you? I think it's just um, when I just say them a couple of words, you know, that, yeah, we love you. Why do they love you, do you think? <sighs> I'm trying to put right all the wrongs, especially for my two eldest boys, the way that I treated them. And I'm so sorry for what I, you know, the way that I behaved. Okay, I understand what you're saying, but I want to I'll put it to you in a different way. I mean, let's say it wasn't complex PTSD. Let's say you had a really debilitating physical health problem that made you removed, you know, impacted on your personality, impacted mm. on your emotions, you know, people who are very, very ill. Uh, if it was a physical health problem, would you be sitting there? Oh, you're smiling. You know, know exactly what I'm asking you. Would you be sitting here saying to me, I let them down? No, because, again, you're so good at what you do. Thank um, you. <laughs> because it's not a physical thing that you can actually see, so therefore you can't deal with mental health because you, you can't see what's going on inside someone's head. Exactly. You can't see how they're feeling. But not um, only that, if it was a physical health problem, yeah. you wouldn't say I was a shit dad because I had you know, a major debilitating chronic physical health problem when the boys were younger, you'd say it was awful and, you know, Sharon was amazing and, and we got through and, you know, but unfortunately we were unlucky and I was diagnosed with X and this mm. is what happened. You you wouldn't take any responsibility for a physical health problem no. because we can't make ourselves have a physical health problem. If we've got one, we've got one. <laughs> yeah. Did you give yourself complex PTSD? Did you make it up? It's a good question, isn't it? Of course you didn't. Throughout your professional career, you dealt with horror after horror, trauma mm. after trauma, with no support. So you had a mental health condition that impacted on your behaviour around your wife and kids mm. for the period of time that it, that it went on from 2005 until 2013 when the yeah. ABH thing happened, yeah. right? You were unwell. You know your boys love you. Mm. Don't you think you owe it to them to start to show yourself some respect? I owe, it, I owe that to a lot of people, I guess. I'm sitting here now and it's sort of like, oh, God, this is so difficult. Just requires you to shift your perception. It's not yeah. as big as you're making it. You've mm -hmm. just got to allow yourself to say, I got through, I did well, to focus on what you really achieved and to recognise the mistakes you made, the things you regret as part of life. What's on your tombstone? I always find these really interesting, um. these moments where <laughs> we ask people, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say about you the fat bloke was a really good guy. Why was he good? I suppose the bottom line is that I've always been there for most people. You're loyal. If I had a penny in my pocket and it was the last penny I knew needed it, you can have it. You're generous. 
in a crisis. I suppose. Are you, did you not tell me earlier that you're the person that people yeah, look to to lead them? Yeah. Okay. So you're loyal, you're generous, and you're a leader when people need to feel safe and led. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm not making this up. No. Um, it's just... Uh, I'm telling uh, you what you've told me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's just that I don't recognise it. Simon, the other co-founder to our organisation, he said the same to me on the train, just be you. I guess I I don't really know what me is, if I'm to be brutally honest. But they do, so you need to ask them. Get those people you love and trust, your boys, your wife, your good mates. Get them to help you work it out. Help, help me see myself differently. What are you trying to achieve by looking at yourself? Maybe maybe a level of self-respect and self-forgiveness. Yeah. I mean, the self-respect thing is, is huge. I've let myself go over the years and I shouldn't. I should be out there running. I should be doing this. I should be... I can't be asked. But there I am telling people, look at your diet, look at your physical health, look at your mental health. Did it? And take your own me. advice. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the, the... If we take anything away from today... That has got to be the answer to your question. Thank you for that answer. Which is what? <laughs> Take a good look at myself and at my own advice. <laughs> and look after yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gary, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's um, It's been amazing. Thank you. I come in and I'm all like friendly and sweet. Right. I'm going to be quite strict with you. Okay. So get ready. I'm ready. You do look joyful. Because <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> I, I need you yeah. to feel about you like we all do. I could cry. So listen to me. Whatever you think about yourself, if you're down on yourself, no offence, but... You're just wrong because, <laughs> no, genuinely, you need to listen to me. Yeah, me, Tarn, our studio manager, Josh, and our producer, Selena, and Grace, we have all fallen for you. We respect you. I'm not just saying this, and you have to open your ears, otherwise I'm going to physically open them, and I'm short, but I'm unbelievably strong. <laughs> and let's not get into a tussle. <laughs> and let me just say, I know you feel bad about what happened, but... Parents mess up. That is normal. Yeah. Tan's taught all of us that. So if you were skipping home going, I've been in the mortuary, but I'll tell you what I'd like to do, some craft. Would you <laughs> mind just grabbing that cereal packet? Because I haven't made a pirate ship for at least a week. Silly daddy. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. And as I said to Tan, which you won't have heard, what you did for all of us, for my family, for people I don't know, for the UK, for London is insurmountable. I can't put it into words. But you have to have some pride in that. When we first met, you said you want to feel lighter, like a weight's been taken off. I hope you do feel that. Yeah. Do you? I, I honestly, now I could just curl up in here and have half hours kit. It's, You're very uh... welcome. <laughs> I love a nap. I will also nap. <laughs> but I really need you to feel proud of what you've done. And not only you personally whether it was all the people you've protected, uh, the respect you have given to others, 
both who were victims and their families, delivering those horrific, like you said it so casually, delivering death messages, everything you've done, but also what you're now doing for your charity. You're a superhero. I know you don't like going on public transport, but I've got to tell you, you're going to like it less when you leave wearing the cape I've been making you. (laughs) Because you deserve a cape. And what you also wanted to do by coming here today is just show men specifically, because the statistics that Tan told me earlier are horrific, that it is really good to share, to unravel, because I know lots of women don't, but we're also quite good at it. You know, I'm a bit overwhelmed. I'm not really coping. I want you to get more help. You have to stay in touch with us as a programme. Please do it. Um, Because we care about you, but mainly... I need you to leave 10 foot high from all of us. And I don't always say that. Normally I just come in saying, was it nice? Here's here's a biscuit. (laughs) But I feel responsible and I feel like it's important that you hear that. Never met you before, but I've been made to feel so welcome. And if people can take away that sense of, if that fat bloke in the office can go and do it, I'm sure if... We can stop a family going through what I put my family through and then we've achieved. And it's as simple as that. It's great for others, but this also has to be great for you. And when you said you put your family through something, now you don't. Or whether you're sitting around the table tonight, I want you to take a moment and you can raise a glass to that amazing wife you have, to those boys who worship you, to your future together. And what you and your wife, by the way, have done professionally, you've helped us all. Thank you. So feel amazing. Thank you for coming in. So sorry about being so bossy. (laughs) You must see it all the time. When you talk to somebody who can't see themselves, I think... He will be able to, and I know he's going to talk to his wife and his friends, and he will get further help. But look what he's done with his life. He's quite extraordinary, isn't he? He's extraordinary. Yeah. He can't say it for himself, yet he started this charity, I'd like to name it, PTSD 999. He's worrying about everybody else and not himself. You must see that a lot. Yeah, but I also see it a lot in people who do jobs like I do, People who do jobs like Gary did, you know, working in the emergency services. He was a he was a soldier before that. I see it with colleagues of mine, you know, medics. That is the pathology of the carer as well, you know. And you know, you could argue that sometimes a good way to avoid your own stuff is to is just to spend your whole time looking out for other people's. It's a it's an avoidance of sort of owning your own pain. So. I suppose as as as, pra- as professional carers, if you like, it's so important that we have the structures and the mechanisms to enable us to also sort of look after ourselves. And, and I think a lot of us aren't very good at doing that. And the uh, idea that he was sitting here and sort of couldn't see it, although he did start to, and I think he is on the road now. Yeah, but that comes down to guilt and shame. Um, look, we all make mistakes in our lives. We all do things we regret. Nobody is perfect. Of course, there's always a line that should not be crossed. Of course, there have to be consequences. You know, I'm not sort of saying that if we explain everything, then we have to condone it. You know, we have to have rules. There have to be boundaries. There have to be consequences to behaviours. But 
there also has to be a point at which we acknowledge that we're human, that we're flawed, and we then find a way, you know, towards reparation towards others if, if necessary, but also for uh, reparation for ourselves. And I think that's the last part for him. I hope that he could see that and he will use his friends and his sons and his wife to just help him reframe the way he sees himself. You, we... you were lovely with him. No, I was bossy with him, but I love him. And I just want to say to anybody who's listening, we will keep, we will, well, like everybody, all the wonderful people who come in, we will tell you, um, what happens? We'll send it. We'll give you Gary updates. Mm. But you have to go and finish sewing his Superman cape. Yes, it's coming along very well. I do hope he likes glitter time. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, we always follow up with our guests, providing useful contacts and information, some of which you will find in the program notes of this episode. Please do share this podcast. You can send links direct from the app if you like. You can also follow to get new episodes as soon as they come out. Also, we would love to know what you think. Do rate, comment and give us a five-star review. It all helps us to make more. And finally, if you're interested in taking part in future episodes of How Did We Get Here, please email describing your issue to how at somethingelse.com. That's how, H-O-W, at somethingelse.com. Something is without the G. Next time, we meet Asha. How can there be physical attraction, sexual attraction, when you're just like feeling high anxiety all the time? This podcast was made by the team at Something Else. The sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer is Grace Laker. The producer is Selena Ream. And the executive producers are Claire Solon and Chris Skinner, with additional production from Steve Ackerman. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>